On April 26, 1976, Gloria Madison turned to her husband and said, Honey, why don't you go home? I am going to be just fine, and I'll see you in the morning. The hospital, she'd been in the hospital overnight. She was eight months pregnant, and the doctors couldn't, she had severe headaches, and the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong, so they said, just stay here for the night. Well, she knew it wasn't any big deal, so she had just said, you know, why don't you go and get some rest, and I'll see you in the morning. So he left, kissed her goodbye, and left. What she didn't know was that 20 minutes later, Gloria Madison was going to have a brain aneurysm. She had a brain aneurysm, and luckily, right as she was having it, the doctors walked in, saw her flatlining, cut open her stomach, and pulled out a little baby girl. Gloria Madison is my mother, and that little baby girl was me. On April 26, 1976, my mom gave her life so that I could have life. Shortly after that, my, um, my dad remarried. Um, he was with me when she died, and um, she, he stayed with me, and then he remarried, and they had two other beautiful children. I grew up in a home where my parents went to church on Easter and Christmas, um, but they had that much of a knowledge of God and that much faith. However, I grew up in a home where my mother and father loved each other very much. I never grew up questioning their love for one another. And so, in some senses, I had a security that many people long for. Well, um, when I was in high school, someone came and told me about Jesus. And um, when I encountered who he was in high school, I um, gave my life to him after seeking answers for several months and um, I found him and kind of when I found him I just kind of took him in and kind of took in Jesus and church and everything that was supposed to be about church and so I just met him and I immediately thought well I've got to stop cussing I probably need to stop kissing boys so much I probably need to be a little nicer to my parents and I just learned the church way but I learned the church way but still remain distant with God well, right before I was getting ready to go to college, um, some, a lady said to me, why don't you go to a Christian school? And I was like, a Christian school? Why did you go to a Christian school? You know? um, but anyway, I, I just, I'd never prayed about it and just decided I was going to go um, randomly to Baylor because it started with a B and it was the first one that came up with more than 10,000 students, BA, and there I was. And I said, okay, maybe I'll just go to Baylor. So I'd signed up to go to Baylor. Um, and shortly that summer before I left for Baylor, um, we got a phone call, and my dad's sister and his nephew were killed tragically in a car accident. And I remember being at that funeral, and it was one of the first times that I'd seen my dad cry. And he was in the same funeral home in which he had buried, um, went through my mother's funeral. And I remember him laying over my aunt's body and just weeping and weeping and weeping. And I was angry. I was like, how could a God who's loving and good and all these things, how could he, how could he do this? How could he take away this little eight-year-old boy and my um, aunt who is just in her 30s, and why would he do this to my dad? He's already lost one wife. Why would he do this to a sister that he loves so dearly? And I also remember that my grief went no deeper 
than the other people in that room. My grief went just as deep, and I had as little hope that they did, even though I knew God. And I went, and that troubled me. I was like, something's wrong with this. And so um, I knew as I went into college that um, I either needed to dive into who God really was, or I needed to just have this kind of religious relationship with God that I knew wouldn't carry me through the day. Well, I um, quickly got connected with Antioch, and when I was there, I met a group of people that I would say I knew that they didn't just have a religion. They just weren't going to church, but they really knew a person. And I, um, I remember this girl, she discipled me, and I remember her saying, you know, you can hear from God. He speaks to you. And they taught me how to spend time with God. And I began to spend time with him and, and see that, you know, spending time with him wasn't about just having this quiet time, but it was about spending time with him so that I could see him, so that I wouldn't just know about him, like what I'd heard about in church for years, but I could actually know him and be familiar with him. And I remember one day just opening my Bible and flipping my Bible open to Ezekiel 16. Not a normal passage that you read. But on, um, I flipped my Bible open to Ezekiel 16, and these were the words that it said. It said, On the day that you were born, your cord was not cut nor were you washed with water to make you clean. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown in an open field. But then I passed by you and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there, I said to you, live. And at that moment, I pictured my own self. I pictured the scene in the hospital room when all the hustle and the bustle and the nurses and my mother's life was being taken away and no one cared about me on the day I was born. But God looked inside my mother's womb and he said to me, live. And he picked me up and he said, death will not triumph, but I am going to say that you live. And I don't know why you're here. I don't know the story of your birth, but I know that if you're here living and breathing, you are living for a purpose and that your life has value. And at that moment, the, the grief and the, the guilt that I felt, I felt an unbelievable amount of hidden shame because I felt like I had killed my mother. And I thought my life has to look good enough to be good enough to exchange my life for hers. At that moment, Jesus set me free. John 14 says, You know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. Surely God will not leave you as an orphan, but he will come to you. So I continued to walk with Jesus. I graduated from college, I taught special education, and then I went on staff with the training school. Um, The closer I got to the heart of God, the more I realized that life didn't revolve around me and that there were actually people that needed to hear and know him. And so a girl that said she'd never be a missionary decided that I wanted to go live overseas. And so I did the mission training school. But then as I was getting ready um, to leave, on, um, and then I went on staff with the training school for about four years. And during that time, I went um, on a... I was ready to, um, I wanted to go overseas. I said, you know, I want to go to Lebanon. But during that time, my parents, my dad's life began to crumble. And I had earlier said that my parents had always loved each other. Well, when pain gets a hold of your life and you don't know God and you have nowhere else to turn, 
You turn to anything else that will numb that pain. Well, my dad had turned in the middle of his pain. Of He'd lost his wife. He lost his sister and nephew. And then shortly after that, his brother died within a week of pneumonia. He had AIDS and they didn't know it. Left a family of five. And then his dad died shortly after that with a heart attack. And the pain of all of that life, my dad took and wasted and went to all these things to meet his needs. He was a workaholic. He went to alcohol and he, he um, started to have affairs. And it started to destroy his marriage. And so my parents, um, I got a call on my birthday, actually, April 26th. And my mom called me and said, um, your dad just left the house. And he asked for a divorce. And um, I just remember saying, God, I need, I need you in this. A friend of mine said to me, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And he said, Lexi, you have to mourn this so that you can receive the comfort of God. Well, my mom called me shortly after that, and she said to me, she said, Lexia, you know, I've never really officially adopted you. She's like, I know you're about to turn 26 years old, um, but is it okay that if I come down to Texas and make you officially mine? And I said, yes, of course you can. And she said, I want you to know that even though your dad and I aren't together, you'll always be my daughter. And so I came, she came down, and I remember it was going to be my golden birthday. I was going to be, on April 26th, I was going to be 26, and I was like, this is my golden birthday. God's going to do so many great things. And I felt like he said my mom was going to um, give her life to Jesus, and he just spoke all these promises about what he'd said over my life, over my generational line, over all these things. And so she came down, and she signed the adoption papers. And then that night... Um, James Mark, I always, James Mark's a friend of mine, I always have him lead worship on my birthday, so we, that night we were um, perks of being around for a while, but um, I, we were, um, he was leading worship and he was singing, a group of friends were around worshiping, and my mom just began to cry and just reached out um, that God started moving in her heart, and then the next morning she went to church and she gave her life to Jesus, and um, I was so excited, and she went back home, and I was leaving that morning as well to go um, to Tunisia to take the training school students there for the summer. So she headed home, and I headed to Tunisia. And when I got to Tunisia, um, I got a, the front desk called me and said, "Hey, we need you to um, we need you to come down, and you need to call home base." And I thought, well, um, something's happened with a missionary or something, and so I call home base and uh, Kevin Johnson's on the other line and he says you know Lexi you need to call your mom and immediately when he said that I knew that something was wrong and I knew that it was my dad because I hadn't heard from him on my birthday and every day on my birthday he always called and um, it was always kind of a special day for us well that time that birthday I hadn't heard from him and so I call my mom and my mom says, um, Lexia, we, we found your dad, and um, he's been dead for several days, and he's taken his own life. And I was in the middle of this phone booth in the middle of Tunisia, and I don't, for those of you who felt pain, which we all have, it felt like this tree had just literally been ripped out of my stomach, and the pain that I'd felt was like nothing that I'd ever felt before. And I slumped down, I just 
yelled out in pain. I slumped down in the phone booth, and Kevin Johnson could hear me slumping down, and he's like, Lexi, Lexi, are you okay? Are you okay? And I said, Kevin, my top button is buttoned. And he's like, (laughs) not something normal that you say. (laughs) But I was like, my top button is buttoned. And he's like, what, what? And I said, I'd remembered years before I was in the training school and someone had come in and Charles Davis had come in and talked about the goodness of God and he said, if you button the top button first, then all the other buttons will fall into place. And you have to get this top button buttoned first to button all the other things right. And he said, for the believer, that top button is the goodness of God. You have to have that. And I knew at that moment that this pain was terrible, that it felt cruel and terrible. But I knew that that top button, that the knowledge that God is good, that that was my place. And I just knew that, I knew that I knew that God that was at my aunt's funeral was not the same God that he was to me now because I'd encountered his love over and over and over again. And I knew, I knew that God wasn't the one who did this, that Satan was really, really bad, and that God was really, really, really good. We have a really, really, really good father. And so I just kept saying that, and then I called all of our team that was there, and I said, let's just worship together, because you know what? In our places of our deepest pain, we are never, ever going to feel pain in heaven. There's no tears, there's no pain, there's no suffering. And there was something, the grace of God hit me in that moment because I knew that this pain that I was feeling, as terrible as it was, there was the grace of God hit me to say, this is the only, I can only this side of heaven worship you with this pain. I can give it to you. I can give you my pain, my confusion, this heartache. I can give it to you as a place of worship and lay it at your feet and say, I don't know all the answers, but I do know that you are good. And you see, our suffering can become an invitation for intimacy with Jesus. He really can meet you in the pain. He really can take you and take those places and redefine what they look like. And you see, there is going to be and there is a battle over the goodness of God. You know, we could say in our mind that we button this button, but can I tell you that for the rest of our life, we need to continue to have revelation of how good He is. It doesn't matter if you button this button and say He's good, but you don't understand it with your being. And you understand it with your being when you come in contact with Him over and over again, when you bring Him your pain and you see that He really is with you. He's really with you. He's a good, good, good Father. He's the kind of father that reaches into the heart of a leper. He's the kind of father that comes before a woman caught in adultery and draws a line in the sand and and causes the stone throwers to go away. There is a battle for the goodness of God. And I don't know, in our world we will have wars, rumors of wars, flooding, all kinds of disasters that we've seen and that will come. But there are those that when they walk in the knowledge of the goodness of God, we will overcome and we will bring hope 
to the world that will show light. And I believe that God is wanting to breathe and to change our perspective on what this pain looks like and how good our God actually is. He's a good parent. He is a good, good parent. And we, in our mind, make God in our own image. We think we project him to be like what we're like, or we project him to be what our parents are like, and it is an imperfect picture. But I want to say again, I cannot say it enough or thoroughly in the whatever minutes I have, but the gospel is really, really, really good. And it's a lot, lot better than you think. And the grace of God is a lot, lot better than you think. So there is an orphan in us. In our pain, we are tempted to believe that God has left us, that he's abandoned us, that he is no longer with us. The enemy whispers to us and says, if you're feeling pain right now, it's because you're being punished. If you're feeling this right now, it's because God doesn't really love you or you're getting this because of what you did in this secret place. I'm causing this to happen. But you see, Jesus bore our punishment on the cross and punishment has to do with fear, but the perfect love of God drives out fear. It is no, our pain is not about punishment. God wants to drive out the orphan in all of us. What do orphans look like? I could have all kinds of descriptions, and I kind of use two words to describe it because I like in, two in words. Orphans at the core can act narcissistic or neurotic. Narcissistic in that it's all about me. I've got to make myself look okay and be good and do all these things, and it's all about me. My life is all about my comfort, my life, this, 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 because no one else is there to look after me. It's all up to me. Or they're neurotic. They're fearful. They're fearful. They're afraid. What if this happens? What if I do this? They're they're afraid of everything and fear grips their life. We can go in both camps all the time. Narcissism and neuroses, fear, and our own pride. It's pictured... um, Well, in the story of the prodigal son, we see a picture, it's often called the prodigal son, and it's a story of two sons. But when you first read it, it's really a story about two orphans. You see the prodigal, the dad, the prodigal asks for his inheritance, the dad gives both sons the inheritance before their time. He gives them the inheritance, and one goes off and squanders it with loose living. And then the, and he comes back and he says, I don't even deserve to be a servant, but I'm going to ask that I be a servant in the house of my God. But what does God do? He comes in, he puts a ring and a robe on him, and he kills the fatted calf. And then the older son looks on him in jealousy and says, what are you, why, why or what are you doing? He, you know, what about me? Narcissistic. What about me? What about me? Haven't I been the good boy? Haven't I done everything right? You see, they were both orphans. The older son didn't understand the goodness of his father. He understood his own goodness, and he thought that that was enough. But he didn't understand how good God was. And so he orphaned himself from his father's inheritance. And the prodigal, 
because of the way he lived. He thought, well, at least I'll just come as a servant. How many of you look at your past and think, well, I'm never going to be this, I'm never going to be that, and God, don't you remember what I did here, and don't you remember that I can't get over this? I keep doing the same thing. Don't you realize that? Since I can't get over this sin, I'll just come in as a servant. I'll just do what I, I'll just come in this way. But God doesn't want servants. He doesn't want servants. He wants sons. He wants daughters. He's not as concerned about our sin as we think. The goodness and the grace of God is enough. He wants relationship with you. He wants to say, both of you are my sons. Everything I have is yours. I want to put on you a ring and a rose and and a robe. Why? Because sons have an inheritance and sons have a relationship with their father. That's what he wants to do with each one of us. He wants to come in and bring relationship with him. The perfect love of God will drive out our fear. He is with us. He is in us. And he loves us. God's love met me again and again and again. In the midst of my pain, I could tell you the glory and the gory in my desire to walk with God in the midst of this pain. But I do know that in the ups and downs of it, that God, in my pain, met me like I'd never been met before. And he took me from feeling and being like an orphan. He took me and showed me how much he loved me as a daughter. He did the same thing he did to Joshua. He said, I am with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. He's constantly telling us, don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie that I've left you. Don't believe your lie that your pain is punishment, but I want to come to you. What did he say? Esther was a true orphan, but she was not an orphan. She was a daughter because she knew her place in the eyes of the king. He loved her. He said, anything I have is yours up to half of this kingdom. He wanted partnership with Esther. He didn't want her to stay down here, but he said, come, be with me that we might rule together. I am with you. I am with you. He doesn't want just a few, but he wants every single one of you, regardless of what you've done or regardless of how good you think you are. All of it needs the slaughtered, fattened calf to be slain. And he was slain on the cross that he might come. He comes to us as a lamb. And he put himself dying on that cross so that the punishment that brought him pain would bring us peace that we might be brought into life. And rulership, co-heirs with him. The spirit you received does not make you slaves to fear again. Rather, you receive the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Our spirits testify with his spirit that we are the children of God. And kids that are set free don't fear. That's why when I heard the news of the tsunami that happened in Southeast Asia, I was 28 and single and... I went over to do a short-term trip that led into four and a half years um, in Sri Lanka, living among a people who were said to be the harshest, rowdiest. It was like I landed in Harlem and didn't know it. (laughs) Um, 
as a single, and they were like, do you, what are you doing living in that village? What are you going there for? They're so rough. You know, but I didn't care because God was with me. I didn't fear. I didn't have to fear being single for the rest of my life. I knew what God had said about my future. I knew that I'd one day be married, and it was at his feet. He would take care of it. And so I went and spent four amazing years in Sri Lanka, and I know that the comfort that I'd received, that I was able to give it back um, to others. And so um, I wish I could tell lots of stories about that time, but I can't. Um, But after four and a half years, God called me home. Long, long story short, he called, um, brought Todd Meek and I together. Todd was actually with me in the phone booth when I found out my dad died eight years before. It's a long, good, great love story. But I married Todd, and um, shortly after that, real short, like days a day, um, I was expecting a child, and um, I went to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, um, your due date is April 24th, 2011. If you remember my story, I was born on April 26th. And um, so we get home, and my husband's like, okay, April 26th. She's coming on April 26th. It's going to be the best movie. It'll be great. And um, I, I went and was just praying and looking at the day planner and all this stuff, and I realized that on April 24th that it was Easter Sunday that year. And it had never been Easter Sunday on April 24th up to that point. And it won't be for another 84 years. Um, but on that Sunday, it was going to be Easter Sunday. And I, this something in me, I said to him, I think that she's going to come then. And sure enough, Addison Rez Meek, Rez for resurrection, um, at 11.59 and like 35 seconds p.m., like 30 seconds before not Easter Sunday, Monday. Um, or, or, that would have been sad. Um, um, on Easter Sunday, my daughter was born. On April 26, 1976, my mother left this world. My dad was there. On April 26, 2002, when my mom signed the adoption papers was the same day that my dad took his life, my mother was there. And then on April 24th, on the day that for some could be marked by fear, God was there and he wanted to say to me and to everyone that I would preach to a very simple message that death has no sting and that in Jesus every death has the potential for resurrection, that he is the resurrection and the life and out of every place of death and pain and everything else that Satan has meant for evil, God will turn it around for good, that God has the final say, that the power of the resurrection always overcomes the power of the tomb and that the beautiful gift of this daughter on a day that was meant for death was meant for life. And it's my story, but it's your story too. So I had Addie Rez, and um, she's cute, isn't she? Um, and then shortly after that, um, I had Quinn Arrow, my next little boy. And um, after he was born, when he was about seven months old, we felt like God called um, to go to Indonesia and um, to help children there. And my husband and I had always had a heart for kids, and we just thought, why not? Let's go. 
um, and we really want to go um, help the children in Indonesia. And so we sold our cars, packed up things. Um, we felt like God set it in December, and by June of that year, we, um, or whatever, five months later, um, we were on a plane to Indonesia. And um, we spent like seven months there and learning the language, getting into the culture. And one night on December 28th, um, I had a dream. And in the dream, I was pregnant. And um, I had become pregnant and overnight. And in, within a day, I would given birth to a baby. And I was like, that'd be interesting. <laughs> but um, I... I talked the dream over with Todd, and we really felt like that was God saying, I want you to pursue adoption. And we'd always wanted to adopt a child. We didn't know when, and we thought maybe that was God just saying, why don't you start praying about it and looking at options. And we looked at options and thought um, we actually then that next week had an opportunity to start adopting an Indonesian baby that was born that a mother had asked if we'd take. Um, And so we'd been praying about that. But then shortly after that, we got a phone call, and it was Todd's sister. And she called us and said, um, Joshua has been taken and put in, CPS has taken him, and he's in CPS right now. And I was wondering if you knew anyone that would adopt him. She said, I'm sure that you guys won't come home from Indonesia, but I don't know who is going to take him. And um, Lisa similar to my dad, has her own story of pain and had only had the, the taste of the gravel of religion in her mouth and had never tasted really um, the goodness of God. And because of that, um, in her pain, she reached out to all kinds of things, crystal meth and different decisions that she had met, made led um, to the, the fact that her 10-year-old or her nine-year-old at that point her nine-year-old was going to be taken well immediately we get off the phone and we're praying I knew at first I mean immediately I was like yes we've got to take him and then um, Todd said you know he's like let's look up when Joshua's birthday is and his birthday is December 28th and so the day the night that I'd had the dream was the same night that it was Joshua's birthday and that only sought to confirm the word we'd already heard knew in our hearts that we were going to go home and take him and so I'm flying home we packed up all our stuff within six days we packed up our stuff sold our cars again packed up everything left everything um, made the 22 and a half plus whatever 37 and a half um, plane ride with the two-year-old and the you know, one-year-old, and I'm going, I will never, I never wanted to do this again. I couldn't wait to not do it for a long, long time. And then here we were doing it again. And I was like, what? So I'm, you know, just drilling. And I'm like, God, I know it's not always fruitful to ask why, but I just, you don't have to tell me, but I'm just kind of wondering, what was this all for? Did we miss it? What were you saying in all this? And he said, "Um, you didn't miss it. And he's like, Lexia, this isn't just about your story. Your life isn't just your story. He's like, I'm weaving Joshua's story. Joshua needs to know, in the midst of not having a mother and not having a father, that though his father and mother forsaken, that I will take him up. They need to know that he has a loving father. He needs to know that you as a parent chose to literally go across to the other side of the world 
that you were willing to give up the millions of children in Indonesia to save Joshua River Reeves, now meek, that you have a purpose. It's not just your story. It's my heart. So I went, we went and started visiting Joshua and um, he has me tell him that story all the time too. He's like, Mom, what are, you know. Um, but um, we went and started visiting him and um, it got to the point when we were able to tell him that it was time to adopt him. And I was in the car with him. I'd made the trip. He lived in Colorado. He was eight years old um, and, or nine I was driving, and I said to him, I said, you know, Joshua, we're not just here because we're your aunt and uncle, but we're visiting you because we want to adopt you. And um, he sat in the back of the car, and he went, I finally have a dad. I finally have a dad. Shortly after that, I um, took him. It was time to take him back to live with us, and I was in the airport line, and the lady at the desk um, called me up, and she said, you know, hey, Miss Meek, you know, we want to bump you up to first class, and um, not because I'm that cool. It's because I have that many miles from going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, So she's like, we want to bump you up to first class. I said, well, I can't be bumped up right now because I have my son, with me, and um, he doesn't have as many miles as I do. Um, I have my son with me, and Joshua hears me say, I have my son with me, and he turns around, and he goes, everybody, and there's this like long line, and there's people everywhere. He's like, I have an announcement. He's like, this is my mom, <laughs> and he's like, I'm coming home. I'm going to be adopted, and um, there wasn't a dry eye in the house, and um, uh, and so I just, I want to say that today those two things should be true. They're true now to us. We finally have a dad. And we have a mom. God in heaven is a perfect, perfect parent. And we can see his perfection, and we can get to know his goodness. You can read the scriptures and still miss how good he is. But he came in the form of Jesus. And it says, if you've seen Jesus, then you have seen the Father. Perfect theology is Jesus Christ. Look at him. Get to know him. Look at what he did. Look at how he acted. Look at who he was. And it will show you what the Father's really like. You can't read the Old Testament and get it unless you look at it through the lens of who Jesus was so that you can put it in right perspective in the backgrounds and the histories and all of those things. You cannot rightly, accurately interpret Scripture in your life unless you interpret it through the person of Jesus. And when we see Him, He is the image of who God is, and He is the image of who we are. We cannot be separated from Him. 
We have a perfect, loving parent. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not trouble, not hardship, not our past, not our present, not our future. It is easier for me to rip my skin off of my bone than it is for God to turn his back on you. The grace of God is far deeper, wider, better than we could ever imagine. Better than I can preach about, better than Jamie can preach about, better than the best person you've ever known can preach about. The grace of God is much better and much deeper and much more freeing and much more life-giving. And the world is looking for people who understand the grace of God and understand that Jesus is the one that we're looking for, that He is, that God is the perfect parent, that marriage is what life is about, that this intimacy that, that He has with the Father is available to us, like it says in John 17. We have a parent. And let me say, we are not orphans looking for adoption. We are not. Satan is the only orphan. He's the only one that's been kicked out of the Father's presence. But there is no living human being that is an orphan. Not one. Now, they may not have a living parent, but let me tell you that Jesus God loves you. You have never been orphaned. You have never been abandoned. I don't care if you love him or you don't love him. He loves you and he wants life and intimacy with you. And can I say that my journey of loving Joshua has been an imperfect one. I am an imperfect parent. I have my own issues and my own reservations. My own children, Addie and and Quinn, that came from my own flesh and blood, It is easier in my natural flesh to love them than it is Joshua. I will never let him listen to this tape. Um, It's just easier. It's a process of growing. But I do know that the love of God through me can love him. And that actually that process will help me to love my own children better. But you know what? We view God that way. Because it's our own image. If I think that God has a much easier time loving Brian than he has loving me. I've orphaned myself in my thinking. Orphaned myself. You've never been orphaned. He doesn't have to muster up anything to love you. You don't have to act better. In my weakness at times, I want Joshua to act a certain way so that it's easier to love him. That's not love. Love is laying down your life. Love is giving yourself. Love is loving because it is the essence of who you are and who they are. And Jesus Christ loves you because he is love. He cannot separate himself from who he is. So it is not based upon your merit, your performance, what you've done, what you will do. It is based upon the fact that he loves you. You came literally from his womb. He loves you. You have a dad. You have a mom. God wants to heal those barriers in your mind, those emotional barriers that keep you from believing it, that keep you either as the the son, the older brother, or the prodigal. He wants to deliver you from those emotional barriers so that you can receive the love of God and step in to the inheritance. 
I love it in Romans 8. Oh, and the other announcement is that we're home. We're finally coming home. We have a home. This isn't our home. We have one. The kingdom of God is our home. We will always have a place. We're never kicked out. Not only do we not have just a place, he has prepared a room for each one of us that is like what we, who we are, what we're called to. Everybody has a place. Everybody. Everybody has a place. Everybody is welcome. No one's left out. No one's left out. Romans 8, after it goes on and says that we no longer have a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption by which we can cry out, Abba, Father, it says later on in verse 19, creation groans and waits for the revealing of the sons of man. Creation itself, the world, the people in it, the plants, the rocks, everything, is waiting for each one of us, not for the Moseses, not for the ones, not for the twos, not for us to just look and say, well, Jamie can have an intimate relationship with you, but I'll just leave it to him and do whatever he says. Nope. The world is waiting for you guys, for me, to be the sons and daughters that he's always called us to be. To understand that there will never, ever be anyone like you in all the world. You are unique in every single part of you. You can only worship God like you were created to worship. You can be his only son and daughter because you are you and there's no one else like you. Creation is waiting for us all to realize that we're not slaves and we're not servants, but we are sons and daughters. And if we are sons and daughters, then we are heirs. Satan knows this. That is why he's attacking our sonship. And there is an inheritance. Fort Worth needs this church to see that they're sons and daughters because there's some things that sons and daughters can walk into that other people don't have a right to do. You have a VIP pass into the very presence of Jesus Christ and he says, go, go, be, do, shine, be this, not because it makes me more or less pleased with you, because I have called you to be co-heirs with me and we can see that in this world it looks like the enemy's overcome, but he will not overcome. He's looking for hope, reformers who will stand in the face of destruction and say there is a God who is good and I can look in the face of of sickness and death and call forth healing. I can look in the face of business problems and say there are solutions. I can look in the face of the medical world and say here's the cure for cancer. I can look in my neighborhood and say here's someone who's hurting. I can bring them into the family of God. The creation groans and waits for the children of God because the children of God have an inheritance and they have no fear. Let's stand.